Hello, I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. Welcome to this, the 10th episode of my podcast series, Financial Crime Matters. In this episode, I interview Jeffrey Robinson, one of the deans of reporting on financial crime, who launched his book, The Laundryman, in 1995, and is in the process of bringing out a revised and updated version of the book. Always opinionated and a great storyteller, I hope you enjoy my interview with Jeffrey Robinson. Here we go. It's my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Robinson. We've been chatting a little bit even before we pushed the button here, and just amazing stories. You're really one of the pioneer journalists in writing about money laundering, not least with the book Laundryman. How did The Laundryman come about? About 1992, we were living in London, and I needed to know something about a very obscure customs regulation for something else, completely detached from anything about money laundering. And I called the U.S. Embassy and spoke to the customs attache, a wonderful man named John Hurley, who told me what I needed to know and then started asking, who are you and what do you do? And I explained. He said, why don't you come for lunch one day? We have a pub in the basement and we have cheeseburgers. Oh, free food. I wandered over to the embassy. It was just down the block and met him. And while we were sitting in the pub having lunch, he said, what you really should be writing about is money laundering. Mm. And I said, what's that? This is 92. You know, the Money Laundering Control Act was 86 and no one had ever heard of it. And he started explaining to me, he said, uh, recently they had discovered $40 million in a California basement put there by Pablo Escobar, waiting to get into his laundering cycle. But it took so long because he had so much money trying to get into the cycle that it sat in the basement and rotted. And by the time Customs found it, it was a mush of paper, $40 million worth of paper. Well, that got my attention. That's a pretty good story. And as a guy who has spent his whole life being a professional storyteller, I said, I'm interested. He pulled out a piece of paper and wrote down 10 names and 10 phone numbers and said, call them and say, John Hurley said to call. I said, well, okay. Had no idea who these people were. And I picked up the phone, called the first number in Washington, and the man came on, and I said, my name is Jeffrey Robinson, and John Hurley suggested I call you. That's good enough for me. What do you need, Jeffrey? I said, John didn't tell me who you are, and he said, well, I'm assistant secretary or undersecretary, I forget the higher rank, for treasury enforcement. I said, oh, and you answer your own phone. He said, it's my private line. The second number was the head of enforcement for the DOJ. And the third one was head of enforcement for customs. All the private lines, and all of them said, if John Hurley said to call, you're good. Right. So I got on a plane, and I went to see all these people. And I came back with oodles and oodles and oodles of suitcases filled with paperwork and case studies and whatnot. And I went to see my publisher at Simon & Schuster. And I said, two words, money laundering. And he said, two words, what's that? Nine months later, laundering was published, hit the UK bestseller list first week out. And the rest, as they say, is history. history. Why was it so groundbreaking, do you think? The reason that book worked is because the stories were great. Besides the fact that it explored a whole area that had never been explored before. Drug money, CIA money, all of which is being laundered. The original hardcover in London had a real dollar bill on the cover. And it said that one out of every four bills in U.S. currency has a trace of cocaine on it. So we put a real dollar bill and got in trouble, by the way, with the Secret Service and you can't do that. Yeah. And it touched a certain nerve with people who had vaguely heard about it but weren't yet involved. Now, you have to understand, in 1992, maybe worldwide, there were 50 or 100,000 people dealing in the money laundering world. Today, there are literally tens of millions. So post 9-11, what difference has that made? A major turning point happened at 9-11. George Bush and Gordon Brown, the chancellor in the UK, 
all said money is the mother's milk of terrorism. They created the Department of Homeland Security, which was a horrible mistake because they put customs, which had been doing great money laundering work, into Homeland Security and then said, oh, by the way, no more money laundering for customs. It's the FBI who will do it. But then Bush turned to the FBI and said, oh, and by the way, you're going to be 90% against terrorism. We want you to go out and find the terrorists by following the money and stop them before they can do another terrorist act. He wanted to turn the FBI into Mossad, which is not what the FBI does. And in the meantime, he completely misread how terrorism is funded because terrorists at that point didn't need to launder money. They didn't launder money. It was a cash business. Terrorism costs very little. They said that 9-11 was $300,000, $400,000, but it was all cash. Bush wanted everybody to follow the money when there was no money to follow. It seems to me there was a revolutionary change in bank transparency that happened as a result of 9-11. Even if the premise was that it was being done to go after terrorism, it did have some effect, didn't it, on going after transnational crime? Yes and no. It had no effect on terrorism because at that point there was no money to look for. The interesting thing is that since then, Hezbollah has become the world's largest, nastiest, most awful drug cartel. And they do launder money. And there are all sorts of Hezbollah stories in the new laundrymen. What happened, though, with the cartels, with the demise of Escobar and the Cali crowd, the Orahelia brothers, they took the model and became franchisers like McDonald's. So they went to the Mexicans and said, you can have part of this. And they went to the Italians and said, you can have this territory. And they franchised so that they weren't doing the transporting. They were simply selling the napkins and the plates and the frozen burgers and whatnot. I cover a story in The New Laundryman about a guy in Miami laundering money, claiming to be El Chavo's laundryman. He wasn't, but he claimed to be. A bunch of ICE guys, former customs guys, find out about him, and what he's doing is he's picking up money on the street. They did an undercover to collect some of this money with him. They're shipping it off to phony companies in China, and the Chinese companies are coming back and buying electronic goods from these Miami small distributors of cell phones and computers and whatnot, shipping those to Colombia, trade-based money laundering, yeah. pure and simple. The ICE guys go to the U.S. attorney in Miami and say, we got them, and these guys are big, and they're nasty, and we can shut down the whole operation. And the U.S. attorney's office says, eh, you know what? It's expensive, it's complicated, it takes a lot of manpower, we're just not interested. They went to the Dade County attorney, essentially the Miami district attorney, and she said, oh, we'll take it. And they've got a very good person in the office who busted them. But it was the feds using the state authorities with the state RICO to put them out of business. When I heard that story, I sat with the head of money laundering in the FBI headquarters in Washington. And I said to him, why aren't you busting bankers, lawyers, accountants, company formation agents, brokers, the gatekeepers? You know, that's how you put a real dent in the problem. Take a lawyer and you stick him in a six-by-six six cell with a guy named Bruce who's got two fang tattoos on the side of his mouth. That will send the message. And he looked at me and said, don't talk to me about that. Walk across the street and ask why they're not prosecuting bankers and lawyers. And he pointed to the Justice Department. There's the problem. One of the things that 9-11 didn't do, and there's talk about it happening, is bringing lawyers, real estate people, accountants more into the BSA. Is that what needs to be done? They're already in. They just don't know it. When the Money Laundering Control Act happened, the Treasury Department wrote to the American Bar Association and said there are reporting requirements now. And that means you. More than $10,000, you have to do it. Every subcommittee of the American Bar Association said, okay, we understand, with one exception. One subcommittee said, no, we're not doing it. 
the subcommittee for the defense attorneys because they're all taking cash. They're going to claim well, plan I, attorney I, I privilege. I actually had a little back and forth with someone from the ABA about this, that that was ratting out your client. And That's right, a client attorney privilege. And there's that, and they're defending that. Of course, I hate that term ratting out because a rat, it's such a derogatory term, and where I think sometimes when you rat out someone, it may be the most noble thing you've ever done. When the Canadians passed their reporting requirements, the first thing all of the Canadian parliamentarians did, because they're all lawyers, was exempt lawyers. So what happened, they passed the reporting requirements, and immediately, that's how the money laundering is being done in Canada, through the yeah. attorney-client accounts. I kind of like to think that things got a little better after 9-11, and you seem to be suggesting they didn't really get that much better, or they changed so much, we need the new laundrymen. They've changed radically. What happened over the years, doing a lot of speaking at Congress's conventions and after-dinner stuff, people have always said, when are you going to update, revise the laundrymen? And a British publisher said to me, you want to do it? We'll do it, and we'll put it right out and take six months. And I said, okay. And six months later, I realized, wow, this mountain is awfully high now because so much has changed that I couldn't just revise the book. So I sat down, and although I didn't work on that full-time, I did spend three years revising this book. It's a completely new book. There's a British version, which is completely different than the American version, because so much has changed. And I found brand new stories and new people who were basically saying, the system's not working. The bad guys are getting away with it. Now, it's true that you could not any longer show up at an American bank with a suitcase full of cash. That won't work anymore. But trade-based money laundering works. You then have the bust of my friends, Mr. Masak and Fonseca. I discovered them in 1999. I was in London, and Channel 4 News asked me to do a special on money laundering for UN Week. And I had done a film on money laundering for the French and Germans called Le Blanchisseur, which is, I guess, the laundryman, and discovered a place called Nui. I picked up the phone on camera and called a company formation agent in London and said, I'm an American businessman. I've got a lot of money coming in. I don't want the Americans or the Brits to find out about it. I don't want anybody in Europe to know about it. Where can I hide it? And the woman said, without a hesitation, Nui. Well, it's a rock 2,000 miles off the New Zealand coast in the middle of the Pacific. And Masek and Van Seca, these two sleazebags, had gone to Nui and said, we'll turn you into a financial center. Completely con these poor island right. people. And I said, the place was now selling banks to Russians for $10,000 a shot, and you could buy a phony company, which is what the Colombians were doing, at $1,000 a pop. And it was all being run by a couple of lawyers. Well, they sued Channel 4. And what annoyed me the most was that Channel 4 said, you know what, he'll settle for 10,000 pounds, it's easier, we'll just, we'll just get rid of it. Well, mm. I'm a New York street kid. No, we don't settle. Somebody takes a punch, we kick. So I decided I was going after them. And I found out a number of things about these guys. And while sitting in a big corner office at the FBI, I said to that senior officer, by the way, have you ever heard of Nui? And he said, no, what's that? And I explained, and I took a piece of paper and I wrote down Jürgen Masak, Raymond Fonseca, and I gave it to him. A week goes by, I'm back in London, and the phone rings at night, and it was my new friend from the FBI. And he said to me, we have multiple areas of interest. Right. They shut down Nui. 9-11 happens. It's all forgotten. Masak and Faseca moved to British Virgin Islands. Next thing I know, Panama Papers happens, and look who's there. I get on to my old friend, who's now retired, and I said, remember we talked about those guys? He said, you're right, those are those guys. I said, why didn't you do anything? He said, what could we do? 9-11 came along, completely distorted all our priorities, and rightfully so. They were lawyers. They were in Panama. There was no way we were going to get them back. In the meantime, Masek Fonseca are out of business. What else? What's different? What's different is that when the new book came out in the 90s, it was the Wild West of anti-money laundering. There were undercovers. Bill Malarney at DEA Atlanta invented a bank in Anguilla 
and ended up arresting over 100 people, confiscating hundreds of millions of dollars. They were only in business for, I think, 60 days or something. But they only had five clients, and they were all Colombian money launderers. I mean, it was great stuff. What happens today is nothing. We're losing. It's gone. Yeah, it's really too complicated. Oh, it's too... Because you hear from the prosecutors, it's too complicated. It costs too much money. The results aren't there. It's too iffy. We can't well, get Well, because we conviction. used to be dealing with cash. Is it because we're dealing now with digits that are being moved well, online? It's trade-based, and it's BIMPY. And what do you do about that? The original BIMPY case was the Bell Helicopter case, which is where a Colombian bought the street money through his broker in Colombia, some industrialist, and he decided he would turn it into a Bell helicopter. He goes to the showroom and says, I've got a blue one, and I'd like leather seats, and does it have a stereo? And he kicks the tires and says, I'll take it. And the guy says, how do you want to pay for it? And he says, well, I'll arrange it. And they said, well, you're going to wire the money? He said, no, 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 I'll arrange it. There were 30 different payments from 16 different sources. Now, Bell helicopter today would say, hold on a minute, because everybody knows that this is an anomaly. Little old ladies writing checks from a New Jersey bank account. But no one knew about it. In those so days. that sounds like things are getting better. But what you're going to tell me is that now it's done with a shell company. Now it's done it's with a... shell companies and there were no Colombians involved. It used to be Colombians on both ends. Now it just looks like trade. Like the Chinese company ordering cell phones in that Miami bust, sending them to Panama. It just looks like normal trade. And the companies, these small businesses, say, what do we know? We get an order for 100 cell phones. We fill it. We send it. That's all. Yeah, I mean, there was all that effort by FinCEN, though, to do GTOs. There is a GTO in that area, and none of them paid any attention to it. One of the big Hezbollah cases that I write about, which was a DEA case, involved cars being shipped from the United States to West Africa. And immediately... This is what a Lebanese-Canadian bank... That's right, uh, the Lebanese-Canadian bank story. Immediately, the DEA, as did I, said, wow, that's money laundering. As a matter of fact, there was no money laundering with the 300 cars. It was a subterfuge to hide the drug money. But the point is, there were 300 car dealers in on this. They busted 30. There were 270 of them who were still out there. Why didn't they get the other 270? Oh, too complicated. It takes too long. Not worth it. You've said things haven't gotten that much better. They've gotten worse, I think you've... you've I really think they said. have. I think, so, we've, I think we're losing the game. So what... If you were king of the world, what needs to be done? Go to the gatekeepers. Lock up the lawyers, bankers, accountants, company formation agents, brokers, real estate people. That's it. You're not going to stop money laundering. You'll displace it. You'll move it from New York to Florida or from Florida to Detroit or wherever. You'll move the action, make it more expensive. But as soon as you start locking up the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers are going to say, these people are now serious. And when they get the client who says, we're going to set up a company in China and do this, that, and the other thing, they're going to say, you know what? We don't need this aggravation. Thank you anyway. Well, Jeffrey Robinson, author of Laundryman and the new one, when's it coming out? Well, I hope next year sometime. It'll be called The New Laundryman. Thank you so much My pleasure. for taking this time with me. Thanks for listening to my interview with Jeffrey Robinson. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll subscribe to my podcast series, Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts because financial crime does matter to me and to you. See you next time.